2: Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew
1: Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast.
2: Philip, can I ask you a question? Please go ahead, Andrew. Are you feeling scandalous? Always. Always. And you know it. Well, we have a very scandalous programme today.
1: I know. I'm feeling both scandalous and a little bit nervous, I have to be honest.
2: Well, you shouldn't feel nervous. This is a story I broke four years ago. It's now come back onto the, uh, the front pages and no one yet has been able to discredit it. So I think we're on pretty safe grounds. Well, but- that's
1: tr- that's right. I hope we are. I mean, it is a very sensitive, I should say, to our, to our listeners, to our viewers. It's a very sensitive and a very controversial story. It's something... We've both worked on actually over our over our lives. It's touched most of our lives and our careers. You more than me in recent years. Um, And it's not every day that you get to talk about a really towering figure in British life in the 20th century. And air allegations that he was in fact a sex criminal, the Jimmy Savile perhaps of the
2: royal family. Exactly. This is very close. This is the uncle of Queen Victoria of uh, of the Queen. Uh, and Prince Philip, uh, Lord Louis Mountbatten. Lord Louis Mountbatten, indeed. Should I say a little bit about him? Yes, do. I just, for those who
1: haven't been following it, though, perhaps before you do, I should just say that a lot of the stories that Andrew has been bringing out into the public domain in recent years they're just finally making the front pages. I think it's fair to say that that hasn't happened up to now. I and mean, it's really making
2: an impression. Well, that's not entirely true. When my book, The Macbattons, came out in 2019, the, the story actually made the front page of the Sunday Times. Uh, and then there was a big bidding war, and the Times serialised the book. So um, these stories have been run. Uh, and then, of course, we've had new allegations, a new victim has come forward recently, backing up the claims that I had in my book. So... Um, it's not quite true that people have ignored it, but certainly, for example, the broadcast media have ignored it. But the newspapers, you know, including reputable newspapers, have um, I think been persuaded by the evidence that I had.
1: Okay, then. For those who don't know, who was this man, Louis Mountbatten?
2: Well, he was born in 1900. He was the last uh, great-grandchild of Queen Victoria. Very close royal connections. Uh, he was um, uh, his his best man in 1922. Was the future Edward VIII. He was close to George VI. Uh, and then to the Queen, uh, particularly when she came to the throne in 1952, and was known as the honorary granddad of Prince Charles, was a great mentor to him. But he also had an amazing public career, which stretched from uh, being Chief of Combined Operations during the Second World War, mounting the Dieppe Raid, being the Supreme Allied Commander in Southeast Asia, eventually being Viceroy of India, the last one, and then going on to be the First Sea Lord during Suez and the Chief of Defence Staff so it's a pretty glittering career
1: yes and he had a glittering circle of friends he wasn't just a friend of the royals he was a friend of film stars top politicians and he was a global celebrity
2: yes he was I mean very very well known in the States he had his honeymoon in the States in fact stayed with Charlie Chaplin and made a film with him on that trip but uh, as you say everyone from Noel Coward through he knew so everyone in showbiz, politics uh, as well as the armed services uh, and and I suppose he was very keen for example on Princess Grace of Monaco all those sort of International royals.
1: It's funny though, anybody who's done any work on the Second World War, um, and I've done a lot, it's, it's not hard to find people who are quite critical about his conduct and his judgment throughout the war. Um, <clears throat>
2: well, I think he's a very interesting character because he has he various
1: was- ships sunk under him, and some say that's because he wasn't particularly good at being captain. Maybe that's unfair. Obviously, the Dieppe raid was a famous disaster, and he was accused of being more interested in the publicity than the military detail. And um, it led to an awful lot of bad
2: feeling, especially in Canada. Well, I mean, Kelly, you know, he was sunk under him. Um, I mean, I think that he can't be blamed for that. But he certainly uh, ignored uh, instructions often. Uh, People were captured because he didn't go and rescue them in time. Uh, One of the, the Kelly was torpedoed with 28 sailors killed when he ignored instructions, and instead of being court-martialed, he was given the DSO. So he was a, manage- a very, very skilled at, at, at PR. He actually had PR people working for him. And you're right, the Dieppe raid was spun. Total disaster, you know, 90% of the troops captured or, or, or killed there. Um, and that was just a case of bad planning, and, and, and the whole plan kept changing. And he kind of was left holding the baby. See, I'm currently researching
1: a book on the end of the war. And I have to say, as Supreme Commander, he was much admired, certainly by Slim and the 14th Army, He fought hard for them to get the resources they needed. So that's a big tick. And it's probably because of that that he got the Viceroy job in India at that critical time with partition, well, it wasn't going to be partition, with independence looming. Yes. And I, the decisions I, he made then, of course, were perhaps the most controversial thing of his own, of his whole life. Because-
2: absolutely. I mean, I think his role in Southeast Asia was, was was pretty much admired. And because he took a very pragmatic stand towards the nationalist movements, uh, at least thought he would be a suitable person to, 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 to be the last viceroy. But there, you know, and again the debate continues, whether he rushed independence, whether he needed to partition in the way he did, whether he was totally uh, unbiased, I think are still questions being debated here in the 75th anniversary of, of independence. But my own feeling is that there would be no country to, to give over if he hadn't done something drastic. It wasn't just him. Others, like Ismay, were also saying, you know the communal violence is so bad. We need to 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 speed this process up.
1: So during the war, during this period of great triumph and occasional disaster for Mountbatten, there are some allegations about his private life beginning to emerge, and and you've done quite a lot of work in finding out about that. How did that? How did it first? Why do people start noticing these stories and writing them down?
2: Well, it's very interesting that the the stories only began to emerge after his death in 1979, after he was murdered by the IRA. And Private Eye were running stories, magazines in Ireland were running stories. And they were always seen just to be rumours. And so I began to investigate them and interview people who might know something about it. And what certainly emerged was a quite separate issue, that he was bisexual, uh, and people knew about it. This, of course, was a time when homosexuality was against the law, that people were being thrown out of the Navy, including by him, for for their sexuality. So he was a hypocrite. He was also a security risk. Uh, But also what began to emerge, talking to people, um, was suggestions that he also had an interest in young boys. And I think the real breakthrough was to get his FBI file uh, and there was an interview with a woman called Lady and when,
1: when and why were the FBI looking at him?
2: Well, this file dates from the Second World War, just after his appointment as Southeast um, uh, um, Asia commander. And I think they were just concerned. I think probably rumors were reaching them. They wanted to find out more. But also, this was a chance interview with someone who had come about something else. And she raised this question. Uh, and then they began to ask other people. Other people quite separately came forward and gave stories, and reputable people, the wife of the Secretary of State for India, a man called John Grombick who who ran one of the big sort of secret intelligence agencies working with the uh, FBI. So these weren't just idle tittle-tattle. Uh, and I think what shocked me was that I took notes of the different uh, personal file numbers, and I requested these numbers from the FBI to be told that these files from the 1940s and 50s had only just been destroyed. And when I asked when they'd been destroyed, I was told after I'd asked for them.
1: That's amazing. That's really amazing.
2: And my suspicion is that the British authorities hadn't realised these existed and got on to the Americans and said, look, this stuff must be, you know, got rid of.
1: So of the material from the 40s that you did see, I think some of it was about Malta, wasn't it? What
2: was in there that made you think there's more to this than dockside tittle-tattle? Well, the interesting story from Malta, and he went there after the war, when he came back from, from being Viceroy, was I interviewed a man called Ron Perks, still alive in his 90s, living in Saffron Walden. Uh, and he'd never spoken before. And we, you know, I got on well, well with him. He only had one son, no grandchildren. And he said, there's a story that I've always had that I really want to get off my chest. Uh, and this is that as his driver in Malta in 1948, he was instructed by the commanding officer, so the predecessor to Mountbatten, that when Mountbatten came, he would want to know where the brothel in Malta was uh, and that he should find out. And so he did. And, and though he said he never took him there himself, that Mountbatten appears to have driven himself to the brothel, um, this is pretty good evidence that people knew exactly what his sexual tastes were.
1: And what was that brothel specialising in, do you know?
2: Well, it specialised in, in, it was the naval officer's brothel, basically. And in fact, Maltese journalists then, when the story broke, did quite a lot of investigation. It's now closed, but they found the site of it and talked to people. So they were able to fill out the story that I'd only got a, a sense of. I wonder why
1: the FBI was gathering this information, though, did they think he was an intelligence leak, risk of a blackmail or a well, compromat think, or something? I think like what we could
2: remember the FBI collect a lot of information. It, it's information that comes in sometimes by chance, uh, as in some of these cases. They're not tasked sometimes to find things. Uh, and uh, this information isn't necessarily true, it's what people have told them. But I think the fact that these reputable people said things when they were being interviewed about something else suggests that there's some uh, truth in it. Um, and. You know, I think the fact that these files were then destroyed, having got, you know, the the, the the numbers, again, is rather suspicious. But, you know, it's only one source. But one of the other sources was a man called Norman Neald, who'd been his driver during the war, who, after the Spycatcher book came out, did um, said, well, I've got a better story than that. And he actually went to New Zealand paper and said, I used to take him to um, be his driver and take him to some of these, uh, basically take him to young boys and girls or bring them to him uh, boys and girls boys and girls i mean i think one of the problems of the story and of course the story you've just got to put down what you hear you can't pick and choose is that there were members of both sexes some were teenagers some were a bit younger some were quite posh and others were rough trade so uh, you know he was either a man of great taste or these are people who are making stories up but norman Neild had nothing to make up on this I mean he, he, he can be shown to have been his driver uh, and um, but the story never really appeared here it only appeared in New Zealand and I think what's one of the interesting things is a lot of these stories really gets never get picked up and as a result it's only until recently that we've 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 begun to pull the thing together but my two most sensational bits of information I think were two boys 16 year old boys abused in August 1977 at Classey born his uh, his house on the west coast of Ireland uh, who gave me very, very detailed testimony about what happened. Uh, one of them is a Sri Lankan, and he, it's known that he had a sort of predilection for Sri Lankan boys. Um, it's not known, though, is it? It's suspected. It's alleged. Uh, well, I know it. I mean, yes, it's known. It's it's He he had a thing for, I mean, talking to people for, for brown-skinned boys. I mean, before but, we get to Ireland, because it's that's really important, Yeah, and I want to go there a little bit more slowly,
1: if we could, because I'm really interested in, the culture that he moved in. And I think we should also say that we obviously live in a much more forgiving and tolerant age. And if, if the man was gay or bisexual, it sounds like he probably was, we would be welcoming and we would be, we'd say, fine, whatever. So you what? Want. Live, hmm. live the life you want to live, live the sexuality that you are. But I think it's also worth pointing out, I think that to be gay in the 1940s and 50s and indeed 60s was to be involved in something illegal and so, therefore, a lot of men who were gay tended to operate in a slightly illicit underground way. And if you look at the diaries of someone like Chips Channon or books about Dryberg, there's a circle of quite wealthy men who were living an underground lifestyle because of their sexuality. Now, it's clear from the way that they tell their own life stories that a part of that sometimes was going somewhere like Morocco, where for some of them, the thrill was to get underage children. They may not have thought it was wrong. They may have thought they were just boys who were exploring their own sexuality. But we would call it rape. We would have been called rape then. We'd still call it rape today. So I guess what I'm saying is, when we talk about Mountbatten as a as a bisexual man, that's not a criticism of him at all. It's mm-hmm. just when straight when he he was got to, if if he didn't get involved in that world, that world led
2: towards temptations that were illegal then and still, and, and rightly still are illegal now. I think the interesting thing about the bisexuality is that in some ways he was quite open with a lot of people. Indeed, those people in those circles like Noel Coward and Tom, Tom Dryberg. You know, clearly it might have prevented his held his career back. But the point is that, you know, senior officers knew about it and turned a blind eye. And that's fine, but it didn't happen to other people. And I think, you know, he was a hypocrite because he was punishing people for the very... Uh, innocent sexuality that he himself no, enjoyed. No,
1: one, one thinks of, um, you know, what happened to... Well, Turing and others. Alan Turing, for yeah. example, you know, a middle-class man didn't have the connections that, that um,
2: Matt Batten had. I mean, the His irony, Life was
1: destroyed because he was gay.
2: Yeah, and the irony, of course, was that there was always seemed to be a security threat. But, you know, clearly if it had been open, then there wouldn't have been a security threat. But, I mean, again, there's stories which I didn't put in the book and I haven't been able to corroborate that he, in fact, had been blackmailed, in effect, uh, by the Russians, they had a spy called Admiral, um, and this was over his his secret um, uh, double life.
1: Well, let's move to Ireland now, and something that I worked on as a journalist in the 1990s as a extraordinary scandal, even to this day, it's not resolved, and it, it does. You've brought it full circle to Mountbatten, in fact. And that's the scandal of the King Cora Boys' Home. Um, I was lucky enough to work with some amazing journalists, um, Peter Taylor. Chris Moore, Neil Grant, um, in the 90s for the BBC. And we were able to look at this story in a completely new way. Just for those who don't know, King Cora was a boys' home. It was run by a man called William McGrath. He was involved in extreme unionist politics. He was also an abuser of the boys in that school. And it's known that he took them to other places to be abused and he invited guests often well-connected guests to the house to abuse the boys. The stories are some of the most upsetting things I've ever had to read. Um, Those boys were so damaged and nobody would listen to them when they complained. That's the tragic part of it. They were so low down the pecking order. They were told they had to be grateful just to be given a roof and a plate of food.
2: And they were accused of being liars and, and all sorts of things. It's a
1: terribly sad story, but we did make some really big breakthroughs on it in that there had been an inquiry because... In 1980, I think, the pl- it was closed down. The abuse went on for most of the 70s. There was an inquiry. And there were rumours that the police and the British intelligence had known what was going on, did nothing about it. And this first inquiry said, no, that's not true at all. Well, we proved that it was true. We actually interviewed uh, a man called Gemmel, Brian Gemmel, who had been an intelligence officer. And he was prepared to break the official Secrets Act to speak out on the BBC to say that we did know We were told not to investigate because information was being gathered about some of these men who were connected to paramilitaries. It was the troubles. People wanted to know what was going on. Perhaps they wanted to blackmail people as well. Um, And it was for me, and it was a very dramatic time. We had to walk into John Burt's office, the director general of the BBC, surrounded by all the BBC's lawyers, to be told that we were going to be breaking the law and the BBC would stand by us. But they couldn't guarantee we, what would happen. We might end up being prosecuted. We might end up having to go to prison. Um, of course, nothing nothing did happen. Um, there was a, a, a brief flurry of stories in the press, and I believe then a second investigation. But I have to say now, we also did hear the word Mountbatten. It wasn't our prime role to investigate him, but we did hear him his name said by some of the victims. And I didn't really think much about that, actually, for a while until then you and I got talking about this many years later.
2: And were these victims talking about their own experiences or secondhand stories? This this is always the
1: problem. Most of what we heard was, my friend said this, or he was taken there and he thinks he saw him. And it's, it's it's difficult to use that as absolute proof. But I knew his name was out there long before you started your work. Yeah,
2: but also I think there's so many people saying the same sort of thing. It's either a very, very giant conspiracy with people who aren't connected or there's some something in the stories. Now, clearly, I suppose, rumours get passed around. People do pass on things. But as you say, there's so much. there was so much evidence and just no one wanted to look at it, really.
1: But there also there's the question of timing. You mentioned that Mountbatten was killed. Or he was killed in 1979. They closed this place down in 1980. And one of our police contacts said, those dates are relevant. Again, just hinting, sort of tempting us to go further, which we didn't
2: at the time. What a shame.
1: Maybe one of the reasons, and there could have been many, maybe one of the reasons they didn't want to investigate the home disappeared.
2: Well, it's very interesting that all the files connected with Mountbatten's death are still closed over forty years later. Um, now, why you have to ask? Uh, and uh, my experience with these two boys who were abused in August 1977, uh, as I say, at his home in west the west of Ireland, one was brought from Kincora, one was brought from London. Okay. Well,
1: let's cause we're, we're we're rushing ahead, and I, I think people who don't know the story as well as us might be confused. It's possible to confuse ourselves too. So we've got to the seventies. We know that Kincora is a site of abuse. And now we're talking about allegations about what was happening, not necessarily in the home, but across the border in Ireland. Is that right?
2: Yes. The two victims um, came from separate spots. One from, let say, from Kincora was brought across, we think, by uh, William McGrath. Uh, and then the other was brought presumably through some similar network from Ireland to him. But he only spent a few weeks each year in Classybourne. They wouldn't have known that those it was those Classybourne dates. is Mountbatten's house in Ireland. It's his home on the West Coast of Ireland. Yes, right. and and that is so. It's very unlikely they would have known that he was that was the three or four weeks that he spent there um, in 1977.
1: Now, after Mountbatten died, there were some biographies written, and the people who wrote those biographies were aware of some of these rumours, perhaps not rumors involving boys but certainly rumors of his bisexuality
2: and by and large they were dismissed yes what's interesting is there were in a sense two books one by philip ziegler was the official life and he went straight up and he said i found no evidence to to suggest that he was bisexual and it wouldn't make sense everyone i talked to said this is crazy uh, including his private secretary though i discovered his private secretary who was himself gay uh knew about this so this was in 1985. In fact, there was another book after that, which again had the cooperation of the family. Uh, and again, um, basically, I think was partly in response to some of the stories that would begin to emerge, to basically again deny the fact that, there were, that he was bisexual. Um, and, uh, and that's sort of where it lay until, until my book came out in 2019.
1: Private Eye did something, and Francis Ween as well, did he not?
2: Well, Private Eye were very good, and they did run stories from 1979 after he was dead. But they didn't really have much hard evidence. Uh, Francis Ween, who works in Private Eye, did have a story when he was writing the Triberg book from a naval rating who, uh, in the course of his research, had come to him saying that Mountbatten had tried to seduce him. And that was certainly one of the patterns, that he used his position of power in the Navy to to uh, have have relations with much more junior members of staff who weren't in a position really to say anything if it, they didn't want to lose their careers. So that kind of all fitted. But uh, unfortunately, Ween couldn't find the letter. He'd been burnt in a fire at his home. Um, but yeah, there have been quite a lot of people who've come forward um, over the years with, with various stories. Well, isn't it, just to be that
1: cliché devil's advocate, isn't it the curse of great men and women that People will make allegations about them because they think they might make some money
2: or get some fame. Well, the the, the people who came forward, and there's another man called Robin Bryans who had lots of stories. Um, No one made any money from these stories. Um, uh, And often they were incidental to other stories that they were telling, a bit like Lady Desires in her interview. So, uh, and you know, it's interesting that we have so many stories about this particular person. I mean, there are plenty of other people I've written about as a biographer. John Buchan never had any stories like this. So I think you have to say that there's no smoke without fire. So how would the process work? You're a very famous man. You
1: live partly in the public eye. You have a secret vice. You're connected to people, maybe, who share that vice, say William McGraw. How did they manage to
2: do it whilst keeping it a secret? Well, I think there were very few members of staff who were there at, at Um They probably wouldn't have known what went on. One of the boys was abused in a boathouse away from the house. Another was abused in a local hotel. It seems That seems a deliberate act of trying to keep them away from, from staff. Also, though he had security, he was constantly shaking off his security. He was found one day in Belfast and he was meant to have you know, proper security. So, And he didn't really want security, and I think one of the reasons may have been uh, that it interfered with this secret life. So um, you know, there, there are ways of getting around um, uh, the, the, the constraints that he had. There are some similarities, I think, here with the Savile story.
1: Um, for years and years, people in our business gossiped about Savile. Now and again, it would appear the a throwaway remark or a story in private eye. I remember my father, who was a radio producer and a sort of local disc jockey, saying to so my younger sister, don't meet with Jimmy Savile, he's a wrong'un. People knew he was not somebody to be trusted, that he had slightly creepy manners about him. But nothing was ever proved. It, there was a tipping point at some point um, after his death when suddenly a whole torrent of new allegations came out, and it had to be accepted that this man wasn't the national hero that we all thought he was, wow. friend of the friend of the royals as well, um, he was something much darker, much much more scary. Do you think one day there'll be a similar tipping point with Mountbatten?
2: Yes, and I think we may have reached it. Um, yeah, these people are very powerful. The stories are shut down. Um, I mean, there were stories I picked up of him being caught with guardsmen in St. James's Park and, and the, the media, which was much more deferential then, shutting it down. He moved in a, very, uh, in a society, which, uh, a group of people who are very loyal to him. Uh, I'm doing a book at the moment on Prince Andrew, and this, I have the same thing. There's a very loyal group of people around him who won't say anything, whether it's good or bad. Um, because it gets them out of the circle or because they just don't feel they want to talk to people Do you
1: ever have moments of doubt? Do you think, maybe I've got this wrong, maybe the case isn't proven, it's just a lot of people wanting to make a bit of noise? Well, I
2: thought long and hard about the chapter, which is called Rumours, and I related it as a series of rumours with the evidence I'd got. But of course, I was putting my reputation on the line. It could have completely destroyed me uh, if it had been proved to be wrong. Uh, and people have tried. I mean, members of staff have come forward and saying, I never saw anything, it couldn't possibly have happened. But as I say, he didn't necessarily want them to see it. Uh, and also, we have plenty of evidence of people saying they never saw things happening, who then did see things happening. John Barrett, his secretary, uh, you know, I knew full well, he knew full well he was gay um, uh, and denied that in print. Well, so uh, okay. there has been a curation of the story.
1: I guess the other thing that a um, tough-minded friend or fellow podcaster would say is is there a danger of another Carl Beach here that must hang over a lot of these stories we all know that Carl Beach was a fantasist and he ruined the lives of many people
2: well I think that's I agree we have to be very careful but I think we mustn't dismiss these stories just because Carl Beach was a fantasist Um and whether Carl Beach came of his own volition just just to get a bit of attention or whether he was part of a wider plot I mean he seemed to have a lot of money he went off to Sweden and was, seems to have been able to, to do all sorts of things, which are surprising given his circumstances. Um, if this was an attempt to discredit uh, uh, allegations that people have been brought, have brought forward, to basically kill the story, you know, that's a quite a sinister thing. But I think you know, just because Carl Beach's allegations weren't true, doesn't mean that these people's allegations aren't true.
1: True, and Beach, of course, invented the most lurid and implausible conspiracies involving multiple people, and frankly passages that could have been taken from the Marquis de
2: Sade I mean they were so incredibly kind of baroque and ridiculous well I mean you know very distinguished public servants of course everyone had to be looked at but it was quite clearly you know you get an instinct who might and who might not have done and these were clearly stupid things and the police should investigate it properly but I think they felt suddenly we got into the situation where they went to the other extreme yes we haven't done anything so far so we better go over the top here and make some examples of people
1: so do you think your work on Mountbatten is is one of the reasons, perhaps the main reason, why you found it so difficult to get access to the papers? Because for those who don't know, Andrew is still involved in a long-running struggle to get full access to papers that actually, as taxpayers, we already own.
2: Yes. Well, I mean, when I began the research for the book, I knew that there were um, extensive diaries and letters, uh, uh, private diaries and letters, from... Dicky and and Edwina. And, of course, for a biographer, this is very useful stuff. It gives you day-to-day events. It gives you their feelings, particularly letters between them. Uh, It it gives you other people that they met. Uh, They'd even be quoted in some of the books we've been talking about. And then I was surprised to be told that these diaries, um, they knew nothing about them, even though there had been, uh, uh, this was 2015, 16, 2011, a huge public uh, campaign by Southampton to buy this material wasn't in the inventory but um, there'd been announcements about what they'd bought for in the end about five million pounds because they got uh, money under the acceptance and lose scheme which of course means that material has to be open. So this is money paid to the
1: Mountbatten family?
2: Yeah they repaired the roof with it I understand Uh, and it was freely sold it could have gone to an American university it unfortunately went to Southampton who then decided they would close this material but I think it was closed, not be- this was closed long before I came on the scene. I think they just, for whatever reason, couldn't be bothered to, 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 to release the stuff, even though they'd made a big effort to get money from public funds, including the Lottery Fund and, and, and Hampshire County Council. And then when I came along, they told a lie, and indeed they'd been telling the same lie to other researchers in the hope we'd go away. And I didn't go away, but they were stuck with this lie. And then I think when they realized I was going to fight it and then the information the commissioner who is the regulator for information ruled that they must release this stuff it was bought to be seen they appealed against that and I think then then it was a personal thing that it would they were determined to to break me financially so that as a lesson to others that basically you don't challenge these things you know you And in the end what
1: percentage of the papers did you get access to?
2: Well, the extraordinary thing is just before the hearing in November 2021, they released 99.9% of the material, over 30,000 pages. So for 10 years, they'd say the stuff couldn't be released. And suddenly it all came out without telling us, without telling me or the lawyers. And it was all innocent. There was nothing there that would scare the horses. So it had all been a complete farce. Um, Do you think there's material that they're still holding on to, which would cast a light on what we've talked about today? Uh, possibly um, there are a hundred redactions, so very, very little. Uh, I think we may have some diary movements um, w- which would place him in Ireland at times. For example, w- w- a new victim has come forward who has a date or a rough date when he was abused. If we could put Matt Batten at that date in Ireland, that would help. But I think a lot of it is just is just secrecy for the sake of secrecy, and it's a culture I think this country suffers from.
1: Well, we've talked before about the curation of history in this country and how hard it is to get access to the actual original documents. Um, but you, did you find, in taking on the university, that it had any other impact in the rest of your life? Um, you, you know, I, I've I've heard people say, Oh, Andrew's a real rebel now.
2: So, with that yeah. slightly
1: surprising tone of voice, because it wasn't <laughs> how you were always seen by right? any I means. No,
2: no. I mean, you know, I, I did literary biography and other books, but I think it, I, I was radicalized by, by this research because I was being prevented from doing, you know, from telling the truth about the past by, by cover ups. And in some ways, it started. I did a book on Guy Burgess, a Cambridge spy. And his, I mean, people had known about his spying and covered it up, and they covered up Philby and and, and other members of the ring and didn't prosecute them, partly on a class basis. People who hadn't gone to Cambridge were prosecuted. And that sort of, that for me felt totally wrong that there was one one rule for the rich and another for others. And this is the same thing. It's about entitled, spoilt people being given a free pass. Uh, And I think, you know, you don't need to be very radical to feel that that's, that's wrong. In terms of impact, yes, of course, it was a huge impact on me financially, because this was not money, you know, uh, it was half a million pounds, which is not the sort of money unless you're a millionaire that you have, uh, which I'm still paying off at the moment, and I got a bit of money from crowdfunding. But also, I found that historians who I thought would support this, access to archives, the importance of uh, uh, academic freedom, freedom of speech, really just didn't want to know that they, they they had their own reasons. For, uh, they were worried What sort about of reason? Well, they, I think they hoped they might get honours, they might get preferment in their job. Uh, was, I was depicted as, as on a private crusade, even though this, had all, this all happened long after my book came out. I had no plans to, to do a new book. Um, and what, did people say this to you f- honestly? Did yeah, they say, I'd yes. like to help you, Andrew, but I can't, old boy? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I had, uh, I had someone who I went to for some money who said, I'm a friend of Princess Anne. Uh, and uh, I said, well, you can give the money anonymously. But I'm sure that Princess Anne wouldn't care less one way or the other on this. Um, I mean, other members of the royal family might. So if people make up the most bizarre reasons not to get involved. I mean, others, I, I know someone who was hoping to get an official life of one of the members of the royal family, who distanced themselves, was in a position. But even organisations that you would think, like the Royal Society of Literature and Society of Authors, that would support something like this, a writer who was under some sort of pressure, really just didn't want to know. They just ignored it. And not a single historian has spoken out publicly and said this is wrong, written a letter to the paper or said we've had a similar experience. So it's rather depressing that, you know, I've slightly felt I've been hung out to dry. And amid all this, you keep digging. And
1: then really in the last few weeks, a completely new person, maybe you were aware of him, I don't know, has has come forward to talk more about being abused and naming Mountbatten.
2: Yes, the extraordinary thing is a man called Arthur Smith, who now lives in Australia, but was an 11-year-old who was abused around the same time as these other boys, uh, I went to a lawyer in Belfast. He was at Kinkora. And he was at Kinkora, exactly. Uh, I should have said that. I didn't know about the case until shortly before it became public. I, I've never spoken to Arthur Smith. I didn't know his ex- about his existence. But he backs up very much the story of my two victims. Uh, and so this really has pushed the case forward. And what is he
1: saying in detail?
2: Well, that uh, when he a man was brought in. I mean, clearly he was very young. He was eleven. Uh, he's pretty traumatised by it. I mean, we we know that he has had mental health problems since. Um, but he's also signed affidavits many years ago, um, and his siblings have signed affidavits where he's talked to them about the experience. So it's not just he's popped up out of the blue. He didn't know about my book, uh, and. He has, has said that his, he was, was basically raped by, by Mountbatten and he knows it was Mountbatten and of course this is always a big question, he may have been raped by someone but it wasn't necessarily him, is that he recognised the, um, uh, the figure because shortly after the, the, the rape um, uh, he, he saw something about him on television and, and we can now put those two things together.
1: And why has he taken so long to make this story public?
2: Well, I'm not privy to to, to why Um, he's now come forward. Um, I think he's talked to, my understanding is he's talked to members of the family. He now, he felt great shame. He now feels he needs to get it off his chest. He's a man in his 50s. Um, And um, I think he, it's a civil action, which he's bringing against the Mountbatten family, but also against the social services in Belfast. And I think... I have to
1: say, does the, the details that he's shared and that I've read about it does remind me of some of the stories I heard when I did my programme. Oh, interesting. Not necessarily anything to do with Mountbatten, of course, but there was, a, there was a way in which it worked. Right. And it was often you're taken somewhere, you're given a drink, yep, which is often lemonade, but it's got alcohol in it. Yep, lemonade Drugs. and brandy
2: was Mountbatten's tipple of faith. I
1: think so? Oh, gosh. And, you know, that would be to cloud your judgement, make you relaxed, and then you're told to be nice to this older gentleman and do what
2: he wants. And they also, certainly, they used, Mountbatten used to offer them candy. Who said that? That's the, 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 the Sri Lankan boy.
1: God, that is a, that is a upsetting it's slightly chilling, image. It's certainly chilling, isn't it? It, yeah. is a, it is a chilling image. And, mm. you know, one doesn't want to rush to judgment. And one is aware of people who've been alleged of doing things that they haven't. Um, but I guess the, the bigger question is now there's so much material out there, where's the pressure for a proper inquiry? Well, I've been. K- Kinkora's had two, and I don't think either of them really were proper.
2: No, they weren't. I mean, funnily thorough. enough, I had a huge campaign to get access to Kinkora files, many of which, of which I mean, sh- all of whom of which should have been released and still still closed. Uh, and after a big fight, they uh, they did release them. They had been completely what we call dry cleaned, weeded out. Uh, but what they did reveal was that they had very prescribed terms, and they were very clear on the sort of judges that they wanted to to deal with them. So it was a complete stitch up. Uh, and indeed, one of the, one of the boys I interviewed, uh, Sean, in my book, was asked to appear at one of these inquiries, the Hart inquiry. But he was he was it all happened right at the last minute. Uh, uh, you know, he was wasn't given a chance to even prepare his 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 responses. And so, in exactly what we've had with the Mountbatten diary thing. Material w- which we were disputing was lodged with my lawyers on the Friday before the Monday morning hearing, even though they'd had six months to do this, on a court order which they ignored. And so I'm afraid the the, the government acts with complete sort of impunity in, in terms of the way it operates. But I agree, we need a proper inquiry. I've been calling for the the car logs for classyborn from August 77 when they were abused to be released. We know they exist. Uh, and, and this it, would prove that Mountbatten was... Where and maybe cars came from Belfast. It, well, we know he was there, but it might show a Belfast number plate. Now, of course, we may get releases which have nothing, uh, and that may clear uh, William McGrath. It may be that another car was brought with, with other number plates. So it doesn't, it doesn't but it just helps um, with the story. But, I mean, I've got a whole series of uh, FOI requests which go back six years with both the Garda and the Police Service of Northern Ireland, uh, which they've refused to answer. And this must raise questions.
1: Well, even though I'm making a podcast with you called The Scandalmongers, I am probably one of those people that tends to believe in the cock-up rather than the conspiracy, because to organise a conspiracy takes such a lot of effort. And that's why the beach stories always seem so ridiculous to me, in that there were so many people involved. Who? Why would anybody want to go to all the trouble to make sure that all these documents are kept from you, that you're not allowed to... Um, you know, the FBI files, suddenly they're there, then they disappear. disappeared. What's what's, it, what's in it for them to justify such a big conspiracy, do you think?
2: Well, I don't think it's a conspiracy. I think they're, they're trying to prevent the truth coming out. Um, why? Well, because it's deeply embarrassing. You know, some of the stuff has come out. They didn't know about the FBI files. I suspect the reason the Americans were so honest with me was that they were appalled that they had been forced to destroy these documents. It's something that can happen under what's called Section 27 of the Freedom of Information Act. So this was a British government, but they couldn't quite say that. But they, so you know, Who,
1: who would that. have been in government at the time?
2: Well, the Conservatives. But I don't think it's a party political thing. I think all governments do not like Freedom of Information. Uh, Tony Blair, who brought, of course, the Freedom of Information Act in, said it was one of the biggest regrets that he ever uh, had. Oh, really? Uh, and Gosh. that he, he had, wished he hadn't done it. And no no parliamentary major parliamentary party is in favour of FOI. In fact, we've gone backwards since the FOI came out. The only ones are possibly the, the, the Lib Dems, but that may change once they get into government. So where are we now? And what's, do you have reasonable hope that there might
1: be a, an official acknowledgement that there's something here that deserves
2: a large-scale open investigation? Well, I mean, I, I said I think we're at a tipping point. You know, I, we, Arthur Smith's this new victim, uh, has, there's still more material to be lodged with the courts. I mean, he's gone to a very reputable lawyer in Belfast who, who specializes in things. But with my previous person, Sean, they kicked his, his, his story down the road and his legal claim, and it's still, years later, still languishing somewhere. I think they'll do that with Arthur Smith. It's certainly what they did with, with my Mountbatten hearing they hoped I would go away. And so this was, you know, my inquiries began in 2016 and the hearing was in 2021. Um, so I think they'll, they'll, they'll try and delay things. And all we can hope is a mixture of media and parliamentary uh, pressure and, 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 and podcasts like this will force someone in government to accept that actually there has to be some truth and transparency. We had the Good Friday Agreement. We've had other uh, moments in history where people have said, let's, you know, let's, Well, the problem there is they've sort of drawn a line, and in some ways, let's not discuss it, let's just forget about it. But let's hope people do now feel that there is a story there. I think there's a changing view with the change of monarch that the royal family shouldn't be given such a free pass, that they are open to a bit more scrutiny. And if someone, you know, who enjoyed the privileges that he did uh, basically committed criminal offences, then even though he's dead, those matters should be investigated. And I think otherwise there's going to continue to be speculation. People can fill that vacuum. Fantasists like Carl Beach can appear, whether they are self-motivated or uh, uh, patsies for someone else. Um, but I think you know, that's how scandal arises, because people aren't allowed to get access to, to the documents which would, 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 would make the case one way or the other. Well, I think you've shown amazing kind
1: of fortitude and grace under pressure, really. In my brief encounter with this story was something that upset me so much. I never really wanted to look into that sort of journalism again. And and you've dealt with this now for many years and you've made real progress um, at some personal cost. Um, I'm sure as we develop this podcast, we'll talk a lot more about the establishment, because it's whether it's in Britain or America or because every scandal is only really a scandal because it offends somebody who does who's in power, who doesn't want a story to come out. Um, Well, I
2: think it's power corrupts, you know, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And in some ways, I think our role as podcasters is to speak truth to power. But there really
1: is an establishment in this country still, isn't there? We like to think there isn't, but your experience shows that when it matters, there really is.
2: I I mean, I don't think there's a series, there are a series of establishments, there are a series of vested interests who protect their own, and... That can be anyone from you know London smart clubs and Newtonians through to, to financiers and tech people who, who are you know calling the, 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 the things and people in the civil service um, or people running UFO units. I mean, I think there are a whole series of people who have information which is not being shared and perhaps should be shared. Uh, and the Freedom of Information Act was to shine a light on some of these areas, which would have led to better government. Well,
1: more power to your pen. Uh, and more power to your crowdfunder if anybody who's listening would like to help. Andrew, he's still considerably out of pocket at the moment, um, buying far too many I've, coffees.
2: I've got 50,000 still to go.
1: Oh, well, let's hope you get at least a couple of quid from this. Andrew, thank you so much. Thanks. And thanks for listening.
2: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio.